6. Between the blood and the air, this exchange is known as internal, or cell, respiration. By internal respiration the oxygen reaches the place where it is to serve its purpose, and the carbon dioxide begins its movement toward the exterior of the body. This, breathing by the cells, island therefore, the final and essential act of respiration, breathing by the lungs is simply the means by which the taking up of oxygen and the giving off of carbon dioxide by the cells is made possible. Hygiene of respiratory organs The liability of the lungs to attacks from such dread diseases as consumption and pneumonia makes questions touching their hygiene of first importance. Consumption does not as a rule attack sound lung tissue, but usually has its beginning in some weak or enfeebled spot in the lungs which has lost its power of resistance. Though consumption is not inherited, as some suppose, lung weaknesses may be transmitted from parents to children. This, together with the fact, now generally recognized, that consumption is contagious, accounts for the frequent appearance of this disease in the same family. Consumption as well as other respiratory affections can in the majority of cases be prevented, and in many cases cured, by an intelligent observation of well-known laws of health. Breathe through the nostrils. Pure air and plenty of it is the main condition in the hygiene of the lungs. One necessary provision for obtaining pure air is that of breathing through the nostrils. Air is the carrier of dust particles and not infrequently of disease germs. 33 Partly through the small hairs in the nose, but mainly through the moist membrane that lines the passages. The nostrils serve as filters for removing the minute solid particles figure 45. While it is important that nose breathing be observed at all times, it is especially important when one is surrounded by a dusty or smoky atmosphere. Otherwise the small particles that are breathed in through the mouth may find a lodging place in the lungs. Figure 45 Figure 45 Human Air Filter Diagram of a section through the nostrils shows projecting bones covered with moist membrane against which the air is made to strike by the narrow passages. 1. Air passages. 2. Cavities in the bones. 3. Front lower portion of the cranial cavity. In addition to removing dust particles and germs, other purposes are served by breathing through the nostrils. The warmth and moisture which the air receives in this way. Prepare it for entering the lungs. Mouth breathing, on the other hand, looks bad and during sleep causes snoring. The habit of nose breathing should be established early in life. 34. Cultivate full breathing. Many people, while apparently taking insufficient air to supply their need for oxygen, do not breathe deeply enough to freely ventilate the lungs. Shallow breathing, as this is called, is objectionable because it fails to keep up a healthy condition of the entire lung surface. Portions of the lungs to which air does not easily penetrate fail to get the fresh air and exercise which they need. As a consequence, they become weakened, by losing their power of resistance, become points of attack in diseases of the lungs. 35 The breathing of each individual should receive attention, and where from some cause it is not sufficiently full and deep, the means should be found for remedying the defect. Causes of shallow breathing Anything that impedes the free movement of air into the lungs tends to cause shallow breathing a drooping of the back or shoulders and a curved condition of the spinal column, such as is caused by an improper position in sitting, interfere with the free movements of the ribs and are recognized causes. Clothing also may impede the respiratory movements and lead to shallow breathing. If too tight around the chest, clothing interferes with the elevation of the ribs, and if too tight around the waist, it prevents the depression of the diaphragm. Other causes of shallow breathing are found in the absence of vigorous exercise, in the leading of an indoor and inactive life, in obstructions in the nostrils and upper pharynx, 
and in the lack of attention to proper methods of breathing. To prevent shallow breathing one should have the habit of sitting and standing erect. The clothing must not be allowed to interfere with the respiratory movements. The taking of exercise sufficiently vigorous to cause deep and rapid breathing should be a common practice and one should spend considerable time out of doors. If one has a flat chest or round shoulders, he should strive by suitable exercises to overcome these defects. Obstructions in the nostrils or pharynx should be removed. Breathing exercises, in overcoming the habit of shallow breathing and in strengthening the lungs generally. The practicing of occasional deep breathing has been found most valuable and is widely recommended. With the hands on the hips, the shoulders drawn back and down, the chest pushed upward and forward, and the chin slightly depressed. Draw the air slowly through the nostrils until the lungs are completely full. After holding this long enough to count three slowly, expel it quickly from the lungs. Avoid straining. To get the benefit of pure air, it is generally better to practice deep breathing out of doors or before an open window. By combining deep breathing with simple exercises of the arms, shoulders, and trunk much may be done towards straightening the spine, squaring the shoulders, and overcoming flatness of the chest. Though such movements are best carried on by the aid of a physical director, one can do much to help himself. One may safely proceed on the principle that slight deformities of the chest, spine, and shoulders are corrected by gaining and keeping the natural positions, and may employ any movements which will loosen up the parts and bring them where they naturally belong. 36 Serious Nature of Colds That many cases of consumption have their beginning in severe colds on the lungs is not only a matter of popular belief but the judgment also of physicians, though the cold is a different affection from that of consumption, it may so lower the vitality of the body and weaken the lung surfaces that the germs of consumption find it easy to get a start, on this account a cold on the chest which does not disappear in a few days, but which persists, causing more or less coughing and pain in the lungs, must be given serious consideration, 37 the usual home remedies failing to give relief, a physician should be consulted, It should also be noted that certain diseases of a serious nature pneumonia, diphtheria, measles, etc. have in their beginning the appearance of colds. On this account it is wise not only to call a physician, but to call him early, in severe attacks of the lungs, especially if the attack be attended by difficult breathing, fever, and a rapid pulse is the case serious and medical advice necessary. Ventilation. The process by which the air in a room is kept fresh and pure is known as ventilation. It is a double process that of bringing fresh air into the room and that of getting rid of air that has been rendered impure by breathing 38 or by lamps. Outdoor air is usually of a different temperature colder in winter, warmer in summer from that indoors, and as a consequence differs from it slightly in weight. On account of this difference, suitable openings in the walls of buildings induce currents which pass between the rooms and the outside atmosphere even when there is no wind. In winter care must be taken to prevent drafts and to avoid too great a loss of heat from the room. A cold draft may even cause more harm to one in delicate health than the breathing of air which is impure. To ventilate a room successfully the problem of preventing drafts must be considered along with that of admitting the fresh air. Figure 46 Figure 46 Window Adjusted for Ventilation Without Drafts The method of ventilation must also be adapted to the construction of the building, the plan of heating, and the condition of the weather. Specific directions cannot be given, but the following suggestions will be found helpful in ventilating rooms where the air is not warm before being admitted. 1. Introduce the air through many small openings rather than a few large ones. If the windows are used for this purpose, 
raise the lower sash and drop the upper one slightly for several windows, varying the width to suit the conditions figure 46. By this means sufficient air may be introduced without causing drafts. 2. Introduce the air at the warmest portions of the room. The air should, if possible, be warm before reaching the occupants. 3. If the wind is blowing, ventilate principally on the sheltered side of the house. Ample provision should be made for fresh air in sleeping rooms, and here again drafts must be avoided, especially should the bed be so placed that strong air currents do not pass over the sleeper. In schoolhouses and halls for public gatherings the means for efficient ventilation should, if possible, be provided in the general plan of construction and method of heating. Figure 47 Figure 47 Artificial respiration as a laboratory experiment. Expiration. Prone posture method of Schaffer. Artificial respiration. When natural breathing is temporarily suspended, as in partial drowning, or when one has been overcome by breathing some poisonous gas. The saving of life often depends upon the prompt application of artificial respiration. This is accomplished by alternately compressing and enlarging the thorax by means of variable pressure on the outside. Imitating the natural process as nearly as possible. Following is the method proposed by Professor E. A. Schaffer of England, and called by him, the prone posture method of artificial respiration. The patient is laid face downward with an arm bent under the head, and intermittent pressure applied vertically over the shortest ribs. The pressure drives the air from the lungs, both by compressing the lower portions of the chest and by forcing the abdominal contents against the diaphragm. While the elastic reaction of the parts causes fresh air to enter figures 47 and 48, the operator kneels or squats by the side of, or across the patient, places his hands over the lowest ribs and swings his body backward and forward so as to allow his weight to fall vertically on the wrists and then to be removed, in this way hardly any muscular exertion is required, the pressure is applied gradually and slowly. Occupying some 3 seconds, it is then withdrawn during 2 seconds and again applied, and so on some 12 times per minute. 39 Figure 48 Figure 48 Artificial Respiration Inspiration The special advantages of the prone posture method over others that have been employed are, I it may be applied by a single individual and for a long period of time without exhaustion. 2. It allows the mucus and water in case of drowning to run out of the mouth and causes the tongue to fall forward so as not to obstruct the passageway. 3. It brings a sufficient amount of air into the lungs. 40. While applying artificial respiration, the heat of the body should not be allowed to escape any more than can possibly be helped. In case of drowning, the patient should be wrapped in dry blankets or clothing, while bottles of hot water may be placed in contact with the body. The circulation should be stimulated, as may be done by rubbing the hands, feet, or limbs in the direction of the flow of the blood in the veins, tobacco smoke and the air passages, smoke consists of minute particles of inverted carbon, or soot, such as collect in the chimneys of fireplaces and furnaces, if much smoke is taken into the lungs, it irritates the delicate linings and tends to clog them up, tobacco smoke also contains the poison nicotine, which is absorbed into the blood, for these reasons the cigarette user who inhales the smoke does himself great harm, injuring his nervous system and laying the foundation for diseases of the air passages. The practice of smoking indoors is likewise objectionable, since everyone in a room containing the smoke is compelled to breathe it. Alcohol and diseases of the lungs. Pneumonia is a serious disease of the lungs caused by germs. The attacks occur as a result of exposure, especially when the body is in a weakened condition. 
A noted authority states that alcoholism is perhaps the most potent predisposing cause of pneumonia. 41 A person addicted to the use of alcohol is also less likely to recover from the disease than one who has avoided its use, a result due in part to the weakening effect of alcohol upon the heart. The congestion of the lungs in pneumonia makes it very difficult for the heart to force the blood through them. The weakened heart of the drunkard gives way under the task. The statement sometimes made that alcohol is beneficial in pulmonary tuberculosis is without foundation in fact. On the other hand, alcoholism is a recognized cause of consumption. Some authorities claim that this disease is more frequent in heavy drinkers than in those of temperate habits, in the proportion of about 3 to 1, and that possibly half of the cases of tuberculosis are traceable to alcoholism. 42 The outdoor cure for lung diseases among the many remedies proposed for consumption and kindred diseases, none have proved more beneficial, according to reports, than the so-called outdoor cure. The person having consumption is fed plentifully upon the most nourishing food, and is made to spend practically his entire time, including the sleeping hours, out of doors. Not only is this done during the pleasant months of summer, but also during the winter when the temperature is below freezing. Severe exposure is prevented by overhead protection at night and by sufficient clothing to keep the body warm. The abundant supply of pure, cold air toughens the lungs and invigorates the entire body, thereby enabling it to throw off the disease. The success attending this method of treating consumptive suggests the proper mode of strengthening lungs that are not diseased, but simply weak. The person having weak lungs should spend as much time as he conveniently can out of doors. He should provide the most ample ventilation at night and have a sleeping room to himself. He should practice deep breathing exercises and partake of a nourishing diet, while avoiding prolonged chilling and other conditions liable to induce colds. He should take advantage of every opportunity of exposing himself fully and freely to the outside atmosphere. Summary. The purpose of respiration is to bring about an exchange of gases between the body and the atmosphere. The organs employed for this purpose called the respiratory organs, are adapted to handling materials in the gaseous state, and are operated in accordance with principles governing the movements of the atmosphere. By alternately increasing and diminishing the thoracic space, air is made to pass between the outside atmosphere and the interior of the lungs, finding its way into the smallest divisions of the lungs, called the alveoli. The air comes very near a large surface of blood. By this means the carbon dioxide diffuses out of the blood and the free oxygen enters, through the combined action of the organs of respiration and the organs that move the blood and the lymph. The cells in all parts of the body are enabled to exchange certain gaseous materials with the outside atmosphere. Figure 49 Figure 49 Model for Demonstrating the Lungs Exercises 1. How does air entering the lungs differ in composition from air leaving the lungs? What purposes of respiration are indicated by these differences? 2. Name the divisions of the lungs. 3. Trace air from the outside atmosphere into the alveoli. Trace the blood from the right ventricle to the alveoli and back again to the left auricle. 4. How does the movement of air into and from the lungs differ from that of the blood through the lungs with respect to the direction of the motion, the causes of the motion, and the tubes through which the motion takes place? 5. How are the air passages kept clean and open? 6. Describe the pleura. Into what divisions does it separate the thoracic cavity? 7. Describe and name uses of the diaphragm. 8. If 30 cubic inches of air are passed into the lungs at each inspiration and dot 05 of this is retained as oxygen. Calculate the number of cubic feet of oxygen consumed each day. 
if the number of inspirations be 18 per minute. 9. Find the weight of a day's supply of oxygen, as found in the above problem, allowing 1.3 ounces as the weight of a cubic foot. 10. Make a study of the hygienic ventilation of the schoolroom. 11. Give advantages of full breathing over shallow breathing. 12. How may a flat chest and round shoulders be a cause of consumption? How may these deformities be corrected? 13. Give general directions for applying artificial respiration. Practical work examine a dissectable model of the chest and its contents. Figure 49. Note the relative size of the two lungs and their position with reference to the heart and diaphragm. Compare the side-to-side and vertical diameters of the cavity. Trace the air tubes from the trachea to their smallest divisions. Observation of lungs optional. Secure from a butcher the lungs of a sheep, calf, or hog. The windpipe and heart should be left attached and the specimen kept in a moist condition until used. Demonstrate the trachea, bronchi, and the bronchial tubes, and the general arrangement of pulmonary arteries and veins. Examine the pleura and show lightness of lung tissue by floating a piece on water, to show the changes that air undergoes in the lungs. 1. Fill a quart jar even full of water. Place a piece of cardboard over its mouth and invert, without spilling, in a pan of water, inserting a tube under the jar. Blow into it air that has been held as long as possible in the lungs. When filled with air, remove the jar from the pan, keeping the top well covered, slipping the cover slightly to one side. Insert a burning splinter and observe that the flame is extinguished. This proves the absence of sufficient oxygen to support combustion. Pour in a little lime water 43 and shake to mix with the air. The change of the lime water to a milky white color proves the presence of carbon dioxide. Figure 50 Figure 50 Apparatus for showing changes which air undergoes while in the lungs. 2. The effects illustrated in experiment may first be shown in a somewhat more striking manner as follows. Fill two bottles of the same size each one-fourth full of lime water and fit each with a two-hold rubber stopper figure 50. Fit into each stopper one short and one long glass tube, the long tube extending below the lime water. Connect the short tube of one bottle and the long tube of the other bottle with a white tube. Now breathe slowly three or four times through the white tube. It will be found that the inspired air passes through one bottle and the expired air through the other. Compare the effect upon the lime water in the two bottles. Insert a small burning splinter into the top of each bottle and note result. What differences between inspired and expired air are thus shown? 3. Blow the breath against a cold window pane. Note and account for the collection of moisture. 4. Note the temperature of the room as shown by a thermometer. Now breathe several times upon the bulb, noting the rise in the mercury. What does this experiment show the body to be losing through the breath? To show changes in the thoracic cavity. 1. To a yard or meter stick, attached to vertical strips, each about 8 inches long, as shown in figure 51. The piece at the end should be secured firmly in place by screws or nails. The other should be movable. With this contrivance measure the sideward and forward expansion of a boy's thorax. Take the diameter first during a complete inspiration and then during a complete expiration. Reading the difference. Compare the forward with the sideward expansion. Figure 51 Figure 51 Apparatus for measuring chest expansion. 2. With a tape line take the circumference of the chest when all the air possible has been expelled from the lungs. Take it again when the lungs have been fully inflated. The difference is now read as the chest expansion. Figure 52 Figure 52 Simple apparatus for illustrating the action of the diaphragm. To illustrate the action of the diaphragm, remove the bottom from a large bottle having a small neck. Scratch a deep mark with a file and hold on the end of this mark a hot poker. 
When the glass cracks, leave the crack around the bottle by heating about one half inch in advance of it. Place the bottle in a large glass jar filled two thirds full of water figure 52. Let the space above the water represent the chest cavity and the water surface represent the diaphragm. Raise the bottle, noting that the water falls, thereby increasing the space and causing air to enter. Then lower the bottle, noting the opposite effect. To show the movement of the air in and out of the bottle, hold with the hand or arrange a support for a burning splinter over the mouth of the bottle. To estimate the capacity of the lungs, breathing as naturally as possible. Expel the air into a spirometer lung tester during a period, say of 10 respirations figure 53. Note the total amount of air exhaled and the number of breaths and calculate the amount of air exhaled at each breath. This is called the tide layer. Figure 53 figure 53 apparatus spirometer for measuring the capacity of the lungs. 2. After an ordinary inspiration empty the lungs as completely as possible into the spirometer. Noting the quantity exhaled, this amount, less the tidal air, is known as the reserve air. The air which is now left in the lungs is called the residual air. On the theory that this is equal in amount to the reserve air, calculate the capacity of the lungs in an ordinary inspiration. 3. Now fill the lungs to the full expansion of the chest and empty them as completely as possible into the spirometer. Noting the amount expelled, this, less the tidal air and the reserve air, is called the complemental air. Now calculate the total capacity of the lungs. Chapter VII Passage of Oxygen Through the Body What is the nature of oxygen? What is its purpose in the body and how does it serve this purpose? How is the blood able to take it up at the lungs and give it off at the cells? What becomes of it after being used? These are questions touching the maintenance of life and they deserve careful consideration. Nature of Oxygen To understand the relation which oxygen sustains to the body we must acquaint ourselves with certain of its chemical properties. It is an element 44 of intense affinity, or combining power, and is one of the most active of all chemical agents. It is able to combine with most of the other elements to form chemical compounds. A familiar example of its combining action is found in ordinary combustion, or burning, on account of the part it plays in this process. Oxygen is called the supporter of combustion but it supports combustion by the simple method of uniting. The ashes that are left and the invisible gases that escape into the atmosphere are the compounds formed by the uniting process. It thus appears that oxygen, in common with the other elements, may exist in either of two forms, one, that in which it is in a free, or uncommoned, condition the form in which it exists in the atmosphere, two, that in which it is a part of compounds, such as the compounds formed in combustion. Oxygen manifests its activity to the best advantage when it is in a free state, or, more accurately speaking, when it is passing from the free state into a one of combination, it is separated from its compounds and brought again into a free state by overcoming with heat, or some other force, the affinity which causes it to unite. How oxygen unites, the chemist believes oxygen, as well as all other substances, to be made up of exceedingly small particles, called atoms. The atoms do not exist singly in either elements or compounds, but are united with each other to form groups of atoms that are called molecules. In an element the molecules are made up of one kind of atoms, but in a compound the molecules are made up of as many kinds of atoms as there are elements in the compound. Changes in the composition of substances called chemical changes are due to rearrangements of the atoms and the formation of new molecules. The atoms, therefore, are the units of chemical combination. In the formation of new compounds they unite, and in the breaking up of existing compounds they separate. 
The uniting of oxygen is no exception to this general law. All of its combinations are brought about by the uniting of its atoms. In the burning of carbon, for example, the atoms of oxygen and the atoms of carbon unite, forming molecules of the compound known as carbon dioxide. The chemical formula of this compound, which is CO2, shows the proportion in which the atoms unite one atom of carbon uniting with two atoms of oxygen in each of the molecules. The affinity of oxygen for other elements, and the affinity of other elements for oxygen, and for each other, resides in their atoms. Oxidation. The uniting of oxygen with other elements is termed oxidation. This may take place slowly or rapidly, the two rates being designated as slow oxidation and rapid oxidation. Examples of slow oxidation are found in certain kinds of decay and in the rusting of iron. Combustion is an example of rapid oxidation. Slow and rapid oxidation, while differing widely in their effects upon surrounding objects, are alike in that both produce heat and form compounds of oxygen. In slow oxidation, however, the heat may come off so gradually that it is not observed. Movement of oxygen through the body. Oxygen has been shown in the preceding chapters to pass from the lungs into the blood and later to leave the blood and, passing through the lymph, to enter the cells. That oxygen does not become a permanent constituent of the cells is shown by the constancy of the body weight. Nearly two pounds of oxygen per day are known to enter the cells of the average sized person. If this became a permanent part of the cells, the body would increase in weight from day to day. Since the body weight remains constant, or nearly so. We must conclude that oxygen leaves the body about as fast as it enters. Oxygen enters the body as a free element. The form in which it leaves the body will be understood when we realize the purpose which it serves and the method by which it serves this purpose. Purpose of oxygen in the body. The question may be raised, is it possible for oxygen to serve a purpose in the body without remaining in it? This, of course, depends upon what the purpose is that it is possible for oxygen to serve a purpose and at the same time pass on through the place where it serves that purpose, is seen by studying the combustion in an ordinary stove figure 54. Oxygen enters at the draft and for the most part passes out at the flue, but in passing through the stove it unites with, or oxidizes, the fuel, causing the combustion which produces the heat. Figure 54 Figure 54 Coal Stove Illustrating Rapid Oxidation Now it is found that certain chemical processes, mainly oxidations, are taking place in the body. These produce the heat for keeping it warm and also supply other forms of energy. 45 Including motion. It is the purpose of oxygen to keep up these oxidations and, by so doing, to aid in supplying the body with energy. It serves this purpose in much the same way that it supports combustion, i.e. by uniting with, or oxidizing, materials derived from foods that are present in the cells. Does oxygen serve other purposes? It has been suggested that oxygen may serve the purpose of oxidizing, or destroying, substances that are injurious and of acting, in this way, as a purifying agent in the body. In support of this view is the natural tendency of oxygen to unite with substances and the well-known fact that oxygen is an important natural agent in purifying water. It seems probable, therefore, that it may to a slight extent serve this purpose in the body. It is probable also that oxygen aids through its chemical activity in the formation of compounds which are to become a part of the cells. Both of these uses, however, are of minor importance when compared with the main use of oxygen, which is that of an aid in supplying energy to the body. Oxygen and the maintenance of life. In the supplying of energy to the body, one of the conditions necessary to the maintenance of life is provided. 
because oxygen is necessary to this process, and because death quickly results when the supply of it is cut off. Oxygen is frequently called the supporter of life. This idea is misleading, for oxygen has no more to do with the maintenance of life than had the food materials with which it unites. Life appears to be more dependent upon oxygen than upon food, simply because the supply of it in the body at any time is exceedingly small, being continually surrounded by an atmosphere containing free oxygen. The body depends upon this as a constant source of supply, and does not store it up. Food, on the other hand, is taken in excess of the body's needs and stored in the various tissues, the supply being sufficient to last for several days. When the supply of either oxygen or food is exhausted in the body, life must cease. The oxygen movement a necessity, since free oxygen is required for keeping up the chemical changes in the cells, and since it ceases to be free as soon as it goes into combination, its continuous movement through the body is a necessity. The oxygen compounds must be removed as fast as formed in order to make room for more free oxygen. This movement has already been studied in connection with the blood and the organs of respiration but the consideration of certain details has been deferred till now. By what means and in what form is the oxygen passage to and from the cells? Passage of oxygen through the blood, in serving its purpose at the cells, the oxygen passes twice through the blood once as it goes toward the cells and again as it passes from the cells to the exterior of the body, passage toward the cells. This is effected mainly through the hemoglobin of the red corpuscles. At the lungs the oxygen and the hemoglobin form a weak chemical compound that breaks up and liberates the oxygen when it reaches the capillaries in the tissues.